You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. It's been a while since uh, we've been able to say good morning. That feels great. And uh, man, it's so good to be here. I can't actually see it. I just see uh, lights, and so that's okay. But um, I, I want to, you know, one thing that you might see new with, with uh, the reading of the scripture is the time of prayer. And I uh, mean, we really want to prioritize that and really on, on two sides. Like we're instructing uh, the, whoever reads, like Kendra who read, uh, we're instructing them to pray for the proclamation of the scriptures um, and to pray really specifically whatever's on your heart for central. And I mean, I want to ask you like to keep doing that, like, and pray like crazy stuff. Like I, I, I'm asking you to pray stuff like this, that there would be a presence of peace in the halls that's unexplainable uh, just because of God's good nature. That when we gather together and, and we ask big things, that, that God would enter in and give. Like There's a common grace for all people that he, he is happy to give. And then also that God would step in and you know, transition people from death to life, from darkness to light. And that uh, in his goodness to us, in his goodness and grace to us, that we could experience that and see it and meet needs. And so also, just like Kendra prayed, and uh, if you cry when you pray about it, that's even better. If you don't, that's fine. But just like she prayed, man, that we would be able to do that. Like, we would get to be a part of that. And so uh, you'll see that every week um, or hear that every week. And man, we just want to ask you to pray that as you drive and in your homes and as you walk around, that God would do something really, really big. Over the next several weeks, uh, we are going to be looking at uh, Jesus, uh, the office of elder and the church. And uh, we're doing that because uh, we are inviting, this is a big step for us, we're inviting uh, Gary into eldership at Free City. And so Gary and Doreen, uh, that's them. Um, And so, yeah. Uh, you probably, okay. Yeah, Gary, um, Gary apologized because uh, he said, man, I, all I have is this picture of me in a t-shirt. And I, my, my first thought was like, dang, man, you look good in a t-shirt. <laughs> kind of buff. Uh, but I, my other thought was like, I, I feel like I always see a new t-shirt. This is, this is true to form. Um, and so, you know, Gary and Doreen have been with us from the very beginning. I mean, they started in my living room uh, when we first started. Uh, there were times when I would hear my kids laughing. Is this like seven years ago? And I would come around and I would see Gary chasing my kids while walking on his hands. Um, and so if you're wondering what it takes to be an elder at Free City, well, there you go. Um, and man, just over the years, Gary and Doreen have proven to be just a source of hope, um, a source of wisdom um, in really trying times, um, a calming source, a character that we would want to see displayed over and over and over again, um, a marriage and family and experience that we would want to see displayed over and over and over again. And, and they are far from perfect, um, but man, they are someone that we would say, gosh, if you want to know what it looks like to put some decades together of following after the Lord, if you've never seen that, we would say, man, we want you to get to know them. And so over the next several weeks, uh, we're going to be talking about um, eldership in the church. And man, we invite you uh, to try to get to know Gary and Doreen. Um, and if you notice, Doreen, uh, she looks just like Ellie off Up. 
Um, like, look again. Looks just like Ellie off up. Now when, you, now when you watch that and Ellie dies, if you didn't cry before, I don't know what's wrong with you. I mean, but you'll cry now. Um, and so uh, I'm going to pray just for them. And, uh, and some of that's just a model. Like, we want you to continue to pray for them as, uh, at, through this process. Um, and so let me pray. Uh, Jesus, Lord, we're thankful uh, for how you do uh, call people to your church. Um, Lord, we're thankful for how you uh, shuffle them around and you bring leaders that we can lean on. And Lord, I'm personally thankful. Uh, man, especially over the last year, um, Gary has been um, an especially important voice in my life personally uh, that has brought peace and calmness and stillness. And so, Lord, we ask you to protect them. We ask you to encourage them. Lord, we ask you to give them energy. And, Lord, for Doreen, um, who, uh, who suffers from some chronic fatigue, Lord, we ask you to heal her. Um, and, Lord, I prayed this prayer several times where I just, everything you do is good and right. And when we get in heaven, anything that we think we're going to ask you about, man, when we just sit down with you, the presence that you have, it'll be evident that everything you did was good and right. And you promised us that. But, but Lord, you also tell us to ask. And so, Jesus, when I think about, like, Doreen's hands, I think of her hands needing to be all over our church. And I ask you to give her energy and strength for that. And so, Lord, we pray for them and we ask for hope. Um, we ask for help. Um, we ask for wisdom. And all these things are things that you delight to give. And so it's in your son's name. It's in Jesus' name that we can do this. Amen. <clears throat> As we're getting started, like, I just want to ask this question. Like, why do we value uh, beautiful things? Like, beautiful things. Like, we, we look at something, we're like, man, that is just beautiful, and that is, like, well put together. There's something ordered about that. And I mean, like, I mean, some of it's, like, in the eye of the beholder, I get it, but I don't think anyone goes by, like, a, a, a yard with perfect fescue grass that is level and lush and dark green, and they don't say, like, man, I just want to roll around in that. There's something about its ordered nature that just is kind of drawing. It's nothing like my yard that has crabgrass. It is not orderly. It is not dark. It is not rich because I have four kids and a dog. And I don't have an irrigation system, and it's just not working for me. But crabgrass, it grows so well. I mean, like, the worst drought on history can't stop it. Why don't we love it? Why don't we value it? Or, or why is it like those, the internet videos where they show you how they make crowns and you see the perfect lines of colors like coming down? Why is that just like soothing to your soul? Or like Skittles? I mean, regardless of where you stand on Skittles, like when it's just perfectly ordered, and I mean, maybe I'm, I'm talking more about some of my loves, you're like a perfectly ordered dishwasher. I mean, there's a way to do it, y'all. And so some of these things are in the eye of the beholder, but some things draw all of us. Like, I don't think you can look at the forest of the Pacific Northwest and just be like, eh, I don't know. I mean, it's okay. Like, we, we took a family vacation there, and my family of 17, like all of us, my family of 17, we were just in, I mean, we were in the forest just walking around, and I mean, every tree we saw, we're like, look at the tree. Like, we, I live in Kansas. We don't have these things. I thought we had trees, but they're not trees. 
I mean, at one point, we actually all just said, like, this huge tree. We, we grabbed hands with one another, and we said, let's just hold hands around this tree. And so we just, and we, I mean, it's not like we were, like, up against the tree, but we just held hands around the tree. I mean, it was enormous. And then I thought, man, this feels like witchcraft. I just need to stop. Um, <laughs> but there was something about it. It was just, it's beautiful. Like, you look at it, and you're just like, man, it's just it's beautiful, and it's right. You know, there's an area of study called the theory of aesthetics, and it's the study of beauty, and there's lots of pockets inside of the theory of aesthetics. But the one that interests me the most is the focus on truth and beauty. It says, that which is true is beautiful And if at first you don't see it, it's an invitation to look at it again. Even that which is true, which is in the process, there's something about the process that draws in. There's something that captures our hearts and our souls. The the, the things that are true are are beautiful. You know, have you ever um, seen, like, like someone dance? Like, not not like your buddy, not, not them. Like, someone... Dan- How did dancing ever even become a thing? Like, think about it. It, it has no utility. Like, it, it's not like, oh, man. It, I mean, it wasn't like way back in the day, people were like, man, we need some cardio around here. I mean, it wasn't that at all. Like, how did dancing become a thing? Like, all of a sudden, rhythmic music, and you kind of start moving. Why is it that when kids, like little kids here dancing, they just kind of start bouncing to it? You know, I mean, we saw it. I mean, Cruz, our, our son, he doesn't bounce. He like karate fight and barrel rolls. It's not beautiful, but why? why? Why is it that when you see the arts like ballet, like you may not be drawn to it, but when you see like people leap like that, like it evolves an emotion. Why is it if music is math, why does music capture us? In such a way. Why are we drawn to beauty? Another question I'd ask, have you ever seen someone dance without music? They look crazy. I mean, when you hear the music, it seems to make sense, but when they dance and there's no music, they just literally look insane. So much of this, the beauty of of the movement is lost when the music behind the movement is unheard. The the, the gospel of reconciliation is the good news that Jesus entered our world to recreate a people to know him, and that is our music, and it is beautiful. It makes us beautiful in the process, and it's a bumpy process. It moves us in a way that a lost world will not fully understand unless they hear the music. And I think there's moments when they see the rhythmic movement in the church. I think there's moments where we say, man, it is beautiful. I think there's moments where the rhythmic movement of the church is just a little off. You know, when we talk about uh, the beautiful task of, of the elder in the local church, We can't fully understand its importance without seeing the beauty of the church itself. And so we're going to spend two weeks in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. And we could spend a lot more than that. Uh, But we're going to spend two weeks. And and this week, we're going to focus on 
uh, not as much the qualifications of, of the pastor elder. That's going to be next week, and we're going to kind of shotgun that. And that'll give you specific ways to evaluate and specific ways to pray. But we're going to focus on just the calling. Like if you look at verse 1, and we're not even there yet, but it's going to talk about aspiring to a calling, and it's going to say it is good and noble. And the calling of the elder is only good and noble if the essence of the church is good and noble. And so we have three points. We're going to look at this, just some facts about the church. And I'm just going to kind of shoot those out. I'm not going to cover all of them, but just some facts. What is the church? And then we're going to look at some realities that exist in the church, and that's going to be pretty quick too. And then we're going to slow down and we're going to look at some pictures that the New Testament, specifically Ephesians, we're going to look in Ephesians at three main pictures of the church. And we're praying that we get glimpses of the beauty that it's describing and we get to see some of that right here. And so, number one, some facts about the church. First, the, 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 the church is the gathering of God's people. Like it's in the word itself, the word is ecclesia, and it means a, a gathering of citizens called out of their home. And so the church is a group of people who gather together because King Jesus has called them out of their old home, out of the world, and is making them ready for a new home, a new kingdom, and a new way of life. And so that means we gather together because of the goodness of Jesus that he's called us out. And we gather together to learn about that new humanity, about the new customs, about the new way of life in which we're supposed to live. And the more that we look at Jesus, the more we're changed along the way. But because we're not fully changed, like in flesh, that means the way is sometimes bumpy. See, the local church is a people called together in a place. And it's good that it's not a building because we don't have one of those. That's been really trying over the last year. But so the local church is a gathering of God's people who he's called out. Uh, the number, number two, the church is both local and universal. And so sometimes when the Bible describes a church, it's describing what we call the universal church. And the universal church is like all of God's people in all times, in all places. And so it gives us an understanding that it's not just the people you know, like there's people who have died or have not been born yet, who are going to be called out by God, who will love Jesus and will follow after him and trust in the work of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin. And so sometimes the Bible, when it talks about it, it's talking about this big C church that is kind of in a grand sweeping idea. But sometimes it's talking about a local expression. It's actually talking about a local expression more then it talks about this universal expression. And so in the local expression, it's a church, it's a local body of believers that exist in and among the brokenness of our world. And that is super important. It's super important because the local broken and hurting people in a broken and hurting world will look broken and hurting at times. Like all of us are going to bring some sort of limp, some sort of weakness, some sort of like irritability. Like do you realize the things that irritate you or cause fear in you don't cause the same level of irritability and fear in everyone? In the local church you will see sin, you will see struggles, you will see suffering. See, still being in a broken world and what 1 Corinthians 15 is going to talk about corruptible flesh. Makes us susceptible to all of those things. Like, I mean, look around you. 
Like, look, look around you. Like, that's what you see. Like, and, and, and like, some of the people around you, you know really, really well. You're like, yeah, I got a list of their sins and sufferings. I mean, like, that's what you see all gathered together. Like, we see loss, hurt, doubt, lack of resources, sickness, reasonable fears, and unreasonable fears. Your fear of spiders is unreasonable. But it doesn't stop anyone from freaking out when they walk into a spider web. I mean, you're just like, I know it's somewhere on me. I know it's somewhere on me, and it's going to kill me. I saw arachnophobia in the 90s. 1900s. It was a while ago, all right? The local church, within it, you'll see sin, struggles, and sufferings. But you'll also see within the local church the people of God who are being changed by the mercy and love of God. Listen to how Peter describes us. Listen to this. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Like when I told you to look around and you're like, yeah, I know about their sin and their struggles, you should probably apologize to them because what you also saw was a new people, a chosen by God, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, who are in the process of being changed by God's ever-present, unending mercy. Like just some facts about the church, like it's a gathering of God's people who have been called out. It is both local and universal. We're going to see sin struggles and sufferings. We're also going to see the people of God who are being changed by the ever-loving mercy of God. And we're also going to see something that is unstoppable. There are only two places in the gospel that the word ecclesia, uh, as for the church, is used. And it's in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. And in Matthew 18, or I'm sorry, Matthew 16, what we see is what Jesus says. And so what happens is Jesus said, hey, who do people say I am? And people are like, ah, man, some people say John the Baptist. Some people say Elijah. Some people say a cool prophet like Moses. And he says, who do you say I am? And Peter steps up and Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. You're the one that we've been waiting to save us. We've been waiting for you. All the prophets have been looking for you. And Jesus says this thing. He says, yes, Peter, Petros, rock. And upon this rock, I will build the church. And the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. Jesus says upon that truth, upon what Peter said, upon that reality that Jesus has entered, and he's the son of God, he's the Lord of all things. And we didn't understand everything that was going to be unpacked with that. They didn't understand that he was going to have to die for that and be resurrected for that. They didn't understand why he'd have to leave and be ascended to send the Holy Spirit. Like when we think about all the things they still didn't understand, but this is what Jesus says about the church. It's unstoppable. It's unstoppable. When I was in a, a residency for church planning, because kind of boot camp, they're like, hey, um, we're going to try to help you do this. Uh, one of the pastors we met with, he said the first sermon he preached uh, on their launch Sunday, which we were just asked what the date was of our launch service, and uh, we haven't actually had it yet. We just kind of started. Um, 
He said the very first sermon he preached was the unstoppable church. And he said, there is no way we can fail. And I was like, man, that is bold. (laughs) Jesus says that the church is unstoppable. Jesus says that the mission of the church is unstoppable. It was recognized by Peter's declaration that Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was established in Acts 2 with the sending of the Holy Spirit. But it was purchased, it was paid for in full with Jesus' broken body and blood and his cold body in the grave. And then it was conquered by his ascension and his resurrection. This is just some facts about the church. There's more. You know, we could talk about the church being the buttress of truth, meaning that like, there's something about what we're doing when we just look at God and we say, look at what he's like, look at what he's like, look at what he's like, that is a buttress, like it's a pillar that foundations are built upon. Like it's important for us to point and say, look, look, look. We could say so many other things. But I want to go to the second point. I want to talk about two realities about the church, and they're this. Jesus' church is both flawed and beautiful. Jesus' church is both flawed and, and, and beautiful. And like, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time talking about the flaws because they are for real. We have flaws. At times the church has pushed the wrong things, overemphasized petty things, and minimized important things. Like we've seen that. We see that. Like this exists because the church is made up of of broken people in a broken culture. And spiritual maturity takes time. And the process of that has lots of ups and, and downs. And the good news is the forgiveness nature that Jesus brings is not just for like us to offer, it's for us to ask for. Like, listen, like, if, if parents in the room, you should apologize to your kids. You should ask for their forgiveness. When you mess up, when you like, get angry, not because of what they did, but because you were embarrassed, you should come back and be like, hey, man, dad was kind of just upset because I was embarrassed or I was really put out. Like, I need you to forgive me. You're not always right. Like, you blow it. Now, I, you're probably right more times than your four-year-old. I mean, that's probably true, but uh, I hope. I mean, Lord. But this exists because there's brokenness, this exists because the hold of sin is deeper and more enmeshed in your soul than you know. This exists because Paul wrote Romans 7. Romans 7, why is it when I do good, evil is right with me? Like, why can't I get past that? And I'm just going to go on the record. If that's true about Paul, if he was frustrated about the indwelling, holding power of sin in his life, like, it's probably true about us too. Like, their sin is deeper and more enmeshed in your life than we know. That's why we discover things. Like, we're telling some story about our life, and we uncover it. Like, we step on it, and we're like, oh, man, I didn't know it was there. God knew it was there. And that's why it costs the death of Jesus to fix it. It's deeper. It's not like God just needed to sin, like, all right, man, we got to do an eight-week Bible study. we got to fix this stuff. It's deeper than we know. Now let's pick up verse 1. I know you're nervous. You don't need to be nervous. Verse 1. Paul says, when he's instructing 
uh, he's talking to Timothy on saying, hey, this is how we're going to go organize the church. This is how we're going to have leadership. This is how you find leadership. And we're just going to look at really two things really, really fast, and then we're going to look at a bunch of pictures. And so it says this, this saying is trustworthy. Okay, that, look at that again. This saying is trustworthy. Like that means it's a solid foundation. Like this saying is something we should like look at and trust. It's not like something we should like, eh, maybe. I mean, this is a saying. This, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires, now we'll, we'll come back and unpack that a lot more next week, but aspires, that means if anyone's like, man, I kind of feel that in my soul, like I kind of want to do that, like that's okay. That's okay. Like it's going to be a mixed bag, like there's going to be pride and all kinds of stuff in that also, but there's also going to be like goodness, like maybe God's leading. I mean, sometimes we see ourselves wrong, but sometimes, man, God steps in and says, hey, you're not ready for this yet, but I'm going to make you ready. So it's okay to aspire. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer. Now, that word overseer, it could be elder, it could be bishop, it could be presbyter, it could be pastor, our favorite term for it, but it's the least used term in all of Scripture. It could be any of these terms. They're all talking about the same office. And so it says, if anyone aspires to be an elder, overseer, bishop, presbyter, uh, pastor, he desires a noble task. Now, look at this. Like the noble task, that's here in the ESV. You know, if you look at the New King James Version, it's going to say a good work. If, if you look at the NASB, it's going to say a fine work. If you look at the Amplified, it's going to say an excellent work. The word there is kalos. And, and kalos, it happens 102 times in 91 verses in the Greek New Testament. And it's usually translated as good, but the meaning is more in line with good, orderly, and beautiful something that is stunning and captivating, something that is precious, worth preserving, something that, you know, like when you see something beautiful, you're like, man, everyone needs to see this. And so it's right here when it says the idea is running in this kind of beautiful lane, excellent in nature, like when we see what it really is, it just stops us in our, in our steps, it captures us. Paul is telling us that the work of an elder is a beautiful task, but only because the church is beautiful. Only because the church is beautiful. With all its problems, is there something beautiful in its essence? A beauty that's not fully uncovered, but a noticeable beauty nevertheless. We're going to look at some different pictures that the church is beautiful even though the moments of it can be flawed and broken. Because the New Testament goes to great lengths to try to describe something that's really precious and wonderful. But we experience this all the time. Like we experience a tragic beauty that's hard to explain when things are missing around it and it doesn't seem to be going smooth, but yet it's like captivating in the moment. When we were in Texas... A couple, Chase and Melissa, um, they were, uh, I mean, just a, a, I mean, we just loved them. They were good friends. They got pregnant, and man, there was a lot of celebration. It was the first kid, and they got pregnant, and we just came around and just celebrated that. And then during a routine uh, ultrasound, we got really 
terrible news. Coleman, their son, uh, was born, or wasn't, his brain wasn't developing because of pocket of cerebral fluid in his brain. And so he would only stay alive as long as he was connected to his mom in utero. But at the time of his birth, his brain would not have been developed. It wasn't developing and it wouldn't develop. He would die. All of a sudden, the excitement and the joy just brought depth and despair and sadness and confusion. You know, in meeting with uh, Chase, you know, trying to get to unpack, like, man, what is all that? What do I do? I mean, he's a medical professional. He's like, man, do I pray that God would heal? I mean, or what do I do? And I was like, man, why wouldn't we pray? And we just cried and we prayed. And Melissa and Chase, they carried Coleman full term. You know, during that process, Chase, he just described this. I mean, I see Melissa experience this differently than me. There are these moments where she feels Coleman kick and there's the flutter of life and the excitement of that. And then the next thought is impending death that's coming. Like he said, I see this duality in her that she is grieving, like she's experiencing like this joy of hope and then this sadness all around. He's like, man, I don't even know how to enter in. And so we were having a cup of coffee and just talking about it. And I was like, man, she's experiencing it like textilely, like she's feeling it. And man, it's okay that you don't feel it in the same way. And he's like, but man, I want to feel it more deeply because I feel like I'm becoming empathetic because I'm not like feeling it the same way. And somehow we got talking and we got talk about building caskets. Now, it's an idea I stole from a friend. I think it's actually a great idea. Uh, I think it'd be profitable. I think you minister to people in time of need. You can hire people who are untrained, give them the meaningful work. Um, I think it can also be a way to process grief in a broken world. And so he had never built anything out of wood, but he said, man, I want to do that. And so he started researching and started building a casket for his son, Coleman. A couple weeks later, I was talking to him, and he's just in, like, tears, and he's like, man, I just had this incredible experience, but it was awful all at the same time. He's like, I was having trouble jointing the wood. Like, I couldn't get it to work, and I was frustrated, and I was cussing, and I was throwing stuff, and I was just upset. I was like, why am I even doing this? This is stupid. Why, why go through the motions when it's so broken? Like, he was all over the place, and somewhere in the process, he cut himself on the wood, and then suddenly he looks down, and he sees his blood upon his son's casket. The disarrayed wood before him. It didn't create anything that he thought, only the vision of what it would be. And his blood, he gets down, and he starts to try to wipe it off, like it has to be clean, and suddenly his blood is mingled with his tears on his son Coleman's casket. Like, think about the feeling in that moment. He was praying to God, like, I want to feel this in a more deep way. And all of a sudden, through the process, God met him in the process in this dark, despairing moment. And in the disarray of what he saw before himself, Think about that. Chase and, and Melissa carried Coleman. He was born normally. They held him as he struggled to breathe and died. They buried him in the casket that Chase had made, a really small funeral, and then they celebrated with their church family with lanterns in the park. And I couldn't explain it to my daughter then who thought we were there. I mean, this was nine years ago, thought we were there doing some sort of like tangled, you know, ceremony. 
As she's looking around, she sees people eating. She sees joy. She sees uncontrollable, like crying and hugging and trying to take it all in. Uh, you know, that was actually a moment where some older girls kind of picked on her and excluded her. Um, and, you know, I wanted to kill them, but I can't, you know, fight a girl at, you know, this kind of event. Um, so I was like, well, where's, where, where's their dad, you know? Like, I mean, there was hurt there. Like, think about all the stuff that was unpacked there, and yet I couldn't explain it to her. There was undeniable beauty. Undeniable beauty as the people of God came together to lament a brokenness in this world, to stumble upon one another, to maybe not speak what should have been spoken, or to speak something that maybe was trite and shouldn't have been spoken. Like all of this wrapped up in a moment as we let lanterns and we litter the sky with the hope that hope comes from above. Something beautiful. And I think everybody who would have seen it and saw the motions of it, they would have said there is something undeniably beautiful, but they couldn't fully understand it unless they hear the music of the gospel behind it. It won't always be so. And as the pillars and buttress of truth, the local church is proclaiming, world. It won't always be so. Jesus came and he healed the sick because sickness won't always be so. Jesus came and he lifted up the broken because that's what the gospel does. Jesus came and he offers a way to salvation. He offers a way that you can be made right before God. And it is nothing that you do, nothing that you earn it, so that you may not become proud. It is the thing that you bring all that you have and the only thing that you really have is your brokenness. I think everyone saw the beauty of that moment. But only those who hear the music of the gospel behind it really bring it in. The aspiring elder is certainly flawed. The efforts of the elder will certainly be flawed. The church that the elder serves will certainly be flawed. But laid upon the disarray and disassembled parts of the church are the tears and blood of Jesus, making it beautiful. It's a beautiful calling. Jesus' church is both flawed and beautiful. And now if you have your you know, fast fingers ready, Go to Ephesians, and we're just going to look at some of these pictures. And I, you know, the, what would be great is it, we'll put out some testimony from Gary so you can get to know him. We're going to make him available in the back so you can meet him if you haven't met him. And we're going to you know, put out a prayer guide so you can kind of pray for them along the way. And then you know, we're going to do this next several weeks. And then in about a month, um, we're asking that if you know something, you know, if you know something that is, uh, you would say, man, I don't know if Gary's qualified to be an elder because of this thing. Like, we're asking you to make that aware to us. Like, we, like you can't be anonymous. I mean, we're not going to live in that world where it's like, yeah, it's not going to work. Like, throw a hand grenade and then run away. Um, but we want to hear those things because this is an important thing. And so, like, we're inviting the church, like, speak in, come learn, come see. Like, this is important. And then we're going to uh, have on a Saturday night, I think it's October 9th, uh, we're going to have an installation service, and uh, we're going to come together. Uh, we're going to celebrate that. We're going to lay hands um, on Gary, and we're going to pray, and then we're going to eat and celebrate. It's going to be great. Um, 
But let's look at this, the pictures of the church. Now, there's lots more pictures, but we're just going to look in Ephesians. And so the first, Ephesians 2, 18 through 20, let me just explain it. Paul tells us that the church is like a new nation, a new family, and a new temple. Like he just rapid shoots that. You'll see those words in there. But so in verses 18 and 19, he says, he says, we are like citizens in a new nation, citizens who are connected. You know, we're connected by a common king. Like we have common language and common practices. Like that's the picture. And so church, like we're connected by a common king and his name is King Jesus. And he is teaching us through the Bible and through his spirit, his customs and his culture. And so it's a separated people now brought together under one king as a new nation. Like there's a connectedness there, but connectedness can get so much closer. So then in verse 19, like look down at verse 19, it says that we are now more like brothers and sisters in the household of God, in a new family. See, families share everything. They don't just live in the same land. They live in the same house. They don't just share the same language. They share the same look. Like, I mean, you know, families can just kind of look at each other and they just know exactly what they're saying. Like, it goes deeper than just the same language to a heart level. You know, the, the, the fights that happen in families happen because you rub up against one another. Your sin is more evident to the people who live with you. But then it gets even closer. There's a new nation with customs and a new king. There's a new family in the same household with a new father. But then in verse 20 and 22, it says that we are bricks in the dwelling place of God. We are part of the temple that houses the Holy Spirit of God. And I mean, if you think about that, like, like a brick can't move around a lot without affecting other bricks. If one brick starts to experience weakness, it threatens all of them. Like it's a reminder that there's an interconnectedness that I need you to fight your sin, to confess your sin one to another, that we might be healed. You need me to fight my sin, to confess it and bring it out, like the inner motives. Like, like we need one another because we're connected in this close way. And so like the church is being described as something knit together with broken and incomplete parts to make something that didn't exist before. God's special possession. And so right there in Ephesians 2, we see a new nation, a new family, a new temple. Those are pictures that are worthy of just to sit and dwell upon and meditate on and say, God, I'm a part of that. I don't even understand that. Help me understand that more. You know, it might even be this, like if you were going to just meditate on this and sit before the Lord, you would say something like this, which one is more important to me right now? Which one rises? Like being a nation, like a new nation with a new king or being a family, a new family with a new father or being a temple, like my sin will hurt other people around me because we are so tightly connected. God, which one do you want to use to change me? That's the first series of pictures in Ephesians. The second one, Ephesians 4, turn the page. Or maybe you don't turn the page, I don't know. Ephesians 4 says, the church as the body of Christ. Now look in verse 12, let's read this. It says, and he, God, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Shepherds, that's where we get the word ponia. It's where, or not pornia, poine, poine. It, it's the Greek. I'm not very good at it. It's where we get the word pastor. It can also be translated as shepherd. 
And so he said he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. And so like, how do we know what to do? It's telling us, like when it says apostles and prophets, it's telling us to look to the scriptures. Like if we want to know what Jesus is like, look to the scriptures. If we want to know what to do, like in this moment of confusion, look for clarity from the scriptures. Develop a good hermeneutic to say, what did this mean then in that culture they heard something? Does that give birth to like a universal idea that would apply to all people in all places, in all times? Does that lead me right now? What do I do now? And if you get here, yes, this is what I do now. And it looks nothing like this. You done messed up, A.A. Ron. It's time to start over. You got to go through the process. You can't just look at it like, yep, that's what I want. Sounds great. Like, it has truth and meaning and order, and it's beautiful. And we have to give ourselves to that truth and that meaning and that beauty. We can't just say, yeah, I don't really like it. I don't know what Picasso was thinking. Eyes don't go there on a face. You know, I don't know. And so that's how we know what to do. We look to the teachings of the apostles and the prophets. And then under that, we have evangelists and shepherds. And so, it, you know, why? Because it grows us and it changes us. And so look at verse 12. It says, we have this to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the statures of the fullness of Christ, so that you may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And so right there, we've already seen up in verse 12, what are we like? It's the building up of the body of Christ. Then we see again, Jesus is the head of the church Jesus is in charge, and there's a stewardship issue handed to all believers, the priesthood of believers, to fight sin, to run after truth, and then there's leadership inside of that. And we're not even going to talk about all the leadership, but two categories, pastor, elder, deacons. And man, it covers so many functions. So then it goes on. Yeah, actually, where it says, verse 15, into him who is the head of into Christ. So Jesus, the head of the church. Okay, like there are, there's a lot of body parts that you can live without. Like you can lose a lot of body parts and still live. You can't lose a head and still live. You, you can borrow body parts. Like you have a body part go out. There's some body parts you can borrow and like get you know, a new kidney and you can live. You can't borrow another head. There's no replacement for Jesus as the head of the church. When we get disconnected from Jesus, when we don't look like Jesus, when we don't follow Jesus, the life of the local church ends. There's nothing else that can animate it. There's counterfeits that can animate it for a while. There's nothing else that can animate it. And so the body of Christ. You know, just verse 16, it says, From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Just kind of the pictures. When a fellow citizen suffers, there's a way that we feel that. But not like when your sister suffers. You feel that much more deeply. 
but think even closer, like as weakness, if a brick and a foundation starts to grow in weakness, it risks the whole building. But think about when a body part suffers. When was the last time you were injured? As you get older, you'll wake up injured. You're like, how did I get injured in the middle of the night? I don't know. But when was the last time you injured, like all of your body kind of curves around it to protect it, like it affects everything. And that's actually a beautiful thing that even if we're walking with a limp, like it draws attention to the injuries of the body, that everything is like, hey, we need to focus here. You see the closeness of how the pain starts to hit us. And so we see the picture of a new nation, a new family, a new temple. We see the picture of the body of Christ and Jesus is the head. And we would say, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. A nation that is just is a beautiful thing. A family that is righteous, that forgives one another because of enduring faithfulness and because of humility is a breathtaking thing. A temple, a place where God dwells, glorious. The body of Christ doing the work of Jesus, the reconciliation work of Jesus, beautiful. One more picture. The church as the bride of Jesus. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 25. Jesus gave everything for his bride. If the price tells us anything of value, knowing that the price to establish the bride of Christ to establish the church was the death of God should do something in our souls that if we don't see beauty there, we should look again. Verse 26. That he, Jesus, might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, like, if the work of someone to do something says anything about value, like, look at the work of Jesus to make us beautiful. He is pouring out his blood to wash all the soiled stains of the bride of Christ. And he promises that he will keep at it until his bride is perfect without blemish. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Like, if you're a husband, you should feel some weight right now. Like, the moment of, like, I don't want to move because people know I'm not doing it well. Like, you should feel that. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Jesus nourishes the church. He cherishes the church. He feels what the church feels. Because right here where it says, like, the body, like, you're affected by it. And Paul could write this because on Acts 9, when he was persecuting the church, he was on his way to Damascus to arrest men, women, and children to persecute him and say, stop talking about Jesus. Jesus showed up. And he says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you hurting me? And he says, I'm not trying to hurt you. And he says, when you're hurting the church, you hurt me. There's an interconnectedness there. Verse 31. Therefore, 
a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And so he, he, he switched over. He's talking about marriage. And he's talking about the covenant of marriage. You know, a man and a woman coming together and leaving. Like, not, like, you know, not like leaving, leaving all their other family. Like, I'll never talk to you again. But becoming a new family unit with a new identity, with a special mission to raise up children to fear and love the Lord. You know, a special mission to proclaim a forgiveness that's between, you know, two people that makes it work. A special thing. Like, he's like, this is a thing. But then he goes on and he says, but I'm not even just talking about that that just points to this i'm talking about something way better than that verse 32 the mystery is profound and i'm saying that refers to christ and the church look at the elements there jesus left his home in heaven he left his father and he came to unite himself us a broken and inconsistent people in a broken and inconsistent world and it's beautiful in the moment by moment in those struggles even those things are unpacking a beautiful beautiful undeniably beautiful picture do you see that? Do you see that? If not, look again. It's all around us. Jesus paid what he paid for this. How, we can, how can we deny the beauty of what is around us? This tragic beauty? For you to fully see that, you have to hear the music of the gospel behind everything. The music of the gospel is there was nothing that you could do to reconnect yourself to God. No amount of moral living, no amount of having a fit, no amount of anything or doing good. And so the God of the universe stepped down in the person of Jesus to pay a price so that you could become the bride of Christ. That's beautiful. Paul can tell us that the work of an elder is beautiful and good only because the church and what Jesus is doing is beautiful and good. The way... um, I'm going to need to talk you through this because we're doing communion again. And we have several different options. But before I talk you through that, I want you to see this and think of this as a family meal, a place for you at the table, a place for you that you can come and be a part of. And there's a movement that happens that we get up and we move toward. And the two movements that we have is you can move forward to take communion up here, or you can move backwards to the information table to take individual communion. 
The way that communion is going to happen is you'll see leaders and they'll be forward and they'll pull the bread for you and they'll dip it for you and they'll hand it and they'll proclaim the goodness of Christ over you as they say, the body and blood of Jesus for you. And so we'll move down the two aisles right here and then we'll move back around or you can get up and you can take communion in the back. In the back we have individual servings that are both gluten-free not glutton-free, as I wrote on it. Spelling's hard. And so here we have bread and we have wine. In the individual cups, we have grape juice and gluten-free bread. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, it really is beautiful that as a family, as a church family, as uh, the body of Christ with so many injuries and so many woundedness and Sometimes it's like our immune system just attacks others. But Lord, you're doing something incredible and you're creating for you your own possession, a beautiful bride. And so Lord, as we just repent, as you bring things to mind and we just say sorry to you or sorry to someone else and we try to change the way that we think about it to follow after you, it is a beautiful work. And Lord, to think how you look at us and you see what you're creating us to be. It's not fully there yet, but you see a beautiful bride without blemish or wrinkle that doesn't have any stains, and yet we see our stains. But even in the process when we still have stains and we still have limps, Lord, you invite us to your table. And so with whatever we have, we can bring it forward and we can bring it to you, to the table of God as you unpack it. And we do it as a family. No one is more uh, like, you know, more worthy to take communion than anyone else. All who fall under Jesus, all who look at Jesus and say, Jesus, you are the son of God. I'm trusting in you. We have a place at the table. Your body was broken for us. Your blood was spilled out for us. And the disassembled nature of us is being made beautiful as your blood covers all the wrongs and as your tears draw us in. And so thanks be to God. Jesus, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.